And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And we're going to be discussing that in a new way, because this is a time where less people are traveling. So one of the things we are doing is we're focusing on the great travelers and travel writers we know. That being said, there's a lot to say about domestic travel, about culture, about cuisine, about history. And we're covering that all on Fromers.com. So we hope you'll visit us there, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. Also follow us on social media. We have some really fun feeds on Instagram, on Twitter, on Pinterest, on Facebook. Just look for the word Fromers. So as I said earlier, we're covering travel a little differently. We are looking at great travelers and talking to them about how they did it, how they built their careers, what they've seen of the world. And our next guest is one of the greatest travelers. His name is Jason Cochran, and I'm proud to say he is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. He also writes two terrific guidebooks for us each year. One is Fromers Easy Guide to London. The other is Fromers Easy Guide to uh, Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. Uh, So welcome to the Travel Show, Jason. It's exciting to have you on. Thank you very much. And I loved my description. That made me feel pretty good today. Thank you. Oh, well, good, good. You should feel good because you came to us already an expert. I remember when we hired you for the first time, maybe around two decades ago, you had spent a good, what, two, three years traveling the world. What what led you t- to decide to just take off and, and see the world? Yeah, I had just come back. Uh, I was four because it was two decades ago. I had just come back from almost a two-year around-the-world backpacking trip. Now, I'd done little backpacking trips, as many of us do in our 20s. But, you know, this was the big one that you had to leave everything for. Um, I had before all that, I was a journalist of, of a different kind. I was at Entertainment Weekly magazine and The Village Voice and a few other places. Uh, but I just decided I really needed to see the world while I had a chance to. I was tired of watching the news and not knowing when I saw, you know, a dateline of a city somewhere where that was, what it felt like, what did it smell like, what was the food like? And so I just made a list of all the things that I never thought I'd be able to see in my life. And then I went and saw them. So I made sure that, that they were done. You saw them all? Well, I didn't do Moscow. There were a couple I had to leave off. Antarctica, you know, I was in my 20s. It's a it's expensive to do some of these things, but most of them I did, you know, Taj Mahal, Sydney Opera House, all these major uh, landmarks that one sees and one one recognizes as major landmarks in in a traveling life. I made sure uh, to go do, go see. So I was going for two years doing all that. And I just returned back and I was, my first job back was at a game show. I know everybody remembers who wants to be a millionaire. I know it's back again right now, but but in those days, Regis Philbin was the host. And I was working on the questions for the Regis Philbin 
<laughs> who wants to be a millionaire? This is what wow. this is what travel will get you because I think they had the same reaction you had. I walked in the door and they're like, "Who are you?" I said, "Oh, I used to work at Entertainment Weekly." And they went, "Fine." And they went, "Oh, I said also I've just been to Jordan. I've just been to South Africa. I've just been to, and like, oh, great question." Yeah. And so I had that job for a while, but you know what I'm telling you? TV is not a, a very glamorous place to work. I really wanted to be writing about travel, and that's where I met. But the two of you, yeah, and you've been doing it ever since. Um, you write London for us. You write Orlando for us. When you wrote your first guidebook to London, I thought it might be interesting to give people a peek behind the scenes of what it takes to to write a guidebook. What, what was the work like? What did that consist of to, to, to cover a city as all-encompassing, as rich, as complicated as London? How did you do it's it? It's a mountain. It's a mountain. And what makes it so hard isn't really just the, the, the shoe leather, of course, that you expect. You have to run around down under it to see things. It's the constant making decisions as you go along. Everything you see, do, layer eyes on, read about, you have to make the conscious decision. Do I include it? Do I not include it? How do I interpret it? so that people can repeat it for themselves if I do decide to include it. So it's not just uh, physically exhausting to do these things. It's mentally, especially in my case, because I was working for uh, the very first one I write was for you, was for you, Pauline. You were the first woman to lead her own guidebook series. And you tapped me, thankfully, to write your London guide. Uh, And so it came from scratch. I didn't have anything to work off of. I just had to say this chapter is going to be hotels. This chapter is going to be nightlife, et cetera, et cetera. And go from there. And so it was constant, constant decisions, which is really the hardest part because you want to put everything in, right. but you can't because you only have so much, so much space. And then you start making hard decisions about why am I choosing to tell someone this is the place that will tell them more about London than this place that I don't have room for. Um, so it, it gets, um, it's hard work. It, re- it really is. But when the thing is finished, you really feel like you're showing people how they can repeat travel for themselves. And that was the ultimate goal. I remember almost, I think the very first time I met uh, Arthur, he said to me, what we do here, we don't write about your vacation. We write about the reader's vacation. And I've always kept that in my head because it helps you decide how to make all these decisions that you have to make. How can someone reading this do it themselves and easily? Well, what I loved about the the first London book and its current iteration, too, is you started by saying, if you're reading this book in English, London is part of your life, whether or not you realize it. And then uh, in your descriptions of the various top sites, like the British Museum, you go into the fact that most of the items you're going to see we're stolen. We're stolen from other cultures. And so you, you're you able to, to bring in all of the different strands of world history when writing that book. Is that fair? Yeah. And I don't, I don't do it to bang any particular drum, but I just believe that history without context is just myth. You know, I feel like that people need to understand the context of the places they're going. I think for a while there, and especially when, when the internet came out, Travel uh, guide writing became more like a directory. You, you know, there wasn't very much opinion in a lot of the guides that were coming out and still do. Uh, they, people just expected it to sort of be a, like a listing of everything that was available. And that's not a service. If something is difficult to do or if something needs a bit of context, so you understand why are there Greeks, marbles, the statues in the middle of London, it, you need to explain it. Um, and it's, that's all it is. It's just some context, really. I mean, so people, people um, 
people need to understand that they're, they don't just arrive at a place fresh. I mean, there's a whole backstory to it uh, and how to navigate it is part of that. And in most guidebooks used to sort of relegate this information to a section on history that you would read right. on the plane over or something. You wouldn't necessarily you read wouldn't while you're running it. around. Yeah. Or you probably wouldn't read it. I just make sure to fold it into each and everything that I do. So people know walking into something. Oh, so, you know, this is how this was created much later than I assumed it was, or, you know, this was rearranged after the event. You need to know these things because a lot of people expect provenance when they go to the places that they choose. Yeah. And you talk about shoe leather. I remember writing a guidebook to Washington, D.C. I literally had to buy new shoes halfway through because my feet were hurting so much. I had to get orthopedic yeah. shoes. But uh, that's often something that people ding travel guides with nowadays. They expect them to be a TripAdvisor-like resource uh, where you're going to see every single hotel or every single restaurant. And that can't be done uh, in a guidebook. It wouldn't be carryable. Even in the ebook form, it wouldn't be readable. So, Oh, and it never used to be either. I mean, people should pick up a guidebook from the 20s, 30s, even the 1800s, and you'll be astonished at how opinionated they were. They, they were opinionated this way. And so, I mean, it's, I'm not just tooting our own horn. We've just sort of picked up an old tradition. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you read some of these older guidebooks, they're far worse. They're things like, oh, go to this such and such a bar in Berlin because that's where the loosest women are. Or something. You've seen crazy <laughs> things in these guidebooks. Right. So actually, we're pretty good. You know, we're family context. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And and in covering London, and we have about a minute and a half before we have to take our first break, what do you expect the changes will be like when you're researching the next edition? You know, it happened that I was actually in London when this all started. I had to evacuate myself in the middle of March after the travel orders came down. And it was already a different city. The energy was completely changed, tamped down. I, um, I'm expecting this in, in, in conjunction with Brexit, because the effects of that are still coming down as well are going to muffle the city, I believe, somewhat for quite a while. Not just the businesses that are closing because of the lost business, you know, the, the coronavirus loss of business, but also because Brexit's confused supply chain so much and the rules so much that it's, it's a real pandemonium, I think, organizationally. And um, I think it'll settle out. England has a long history of organizing pandemonium back into order, but it's going to be a different city for a while. It'll be safe. But I think a lot, of, a lot of things that had been open will not be open uh, in terms of like restaurants and nightclubs and those, those passing things. Yeah, no, it's going to be interesting. I'm going to talk to you about theater when we get back, but we do have to take our first break of the hour. To anybody just tuning in, we're speaking with family. We're speaking with Jason Cochran, who is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. He also writes Fromers Easy Guide to London, Fromers Easy Guide to Disney World, Orlando, and Universal, and uh, many, many articles for our website, where his erudite, always fascinating voice shines brightly. We have to take our first break. Don't turn that dial. We'll be right back.
You are listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer, and on the line is Jason Cochran. I do want to say, because this is such a strange time in our history, that we are taping this show in the middle of Oh, at the beginning of June. Oh, I'm losing my mind. I can't remember what day it is. It's the beginning of June. You'll be hearing this uh, later. So, but that is the context within which we're taping this. And there was a very interesting new article that came out last week in which they talked about the fact that the only big major Broadway style production playing in the world today is Phantom of the Opera. And it's playing in South Korea. They have managed to use their protocols so effectively that they have kept that musical open throughout this uh, pandemic without um, having to limit the number of people in the audience or change the show in any way. Yes, there is still a kiss in the show. Um what do you think do you and Andrew Lloyd Webber is apparently trying to get the West End in London to 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 adopt these types of protocols and to reopen the shows? Do you think that could happen anytime soon, Jason? It's interesting because my friend Matt Lisey is the one giving the kiss. He's playing Raoul in that oh. show. I have two friends in that in that show. <clears throat> They're Americans. Uh, they were cast in America. So they've been quarantined. They did. They shut down the show briefly, as the Times talks about. Right. Um, and some of them ca- came down or at least tested positive for COVID-19. I do think it's possible. Broadway's going to have to think of something and, it's, and West End as well. Um, but it's going to a lot of the changes are going to happen in the audience, I think, because you can you can manage certain things backstage. But when you put people all together, you know, next to each other in the seats in the audience, that's a different thing entirely. And it affects the capacity of the shows. And then you. If you have fewer people coming in uh, to sit down because you need space, then the producers have to change their ways and the, the right. theater owners have to bend and be a yeah. bit more permissive. One of the, I was talking with a friend last night, and he's getting his PhD in theater at, Northwest, at uh, Northwestern right now. That we, it's possible that the future of theater for the short term could be to embrace streaming performances, you know, to mm-hmm. video these things. Because one thing a lot of us have seen during lockdown, these great world theaters that we would normally go see on our vacations, you know, the National Theater, for example, or, you know, or, or opera houses that are destinations. And now they're streaming their stuff online, a lot of this archive stuff. But right. suddenly now this new appetite for streaming theater has, has come around. And it'll be very interesting to see if uh, the unions and the, the theater owners embrace that because it'll be an interesting way to sort of preview a destination in a way before you go. If you can, you can watch a library of the national theaters performances before you go to London. And then when you're in London, go see the newest one that hasn't been streamed yet. So it could be a potential if they can figure out, uh, you know, the unions are one of the biggest roadblocks because you have to figure out how to pay everybody fairly. Right. Kind of sure. We are speaking with Jason Cochran. He is the author, we're proud to say, of Fromer's Easy Guide to London, as well as Fromer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal and Orlando. And Jason, on that topic. Uh, as I said earlier, we are talking in early June on Friday, Universal Studios or Universal Orlando, I should say, in Orlando is going to be the first major uh, theme park to open in the United States, if you don't count Legoland, which is a smaller park. Uh, what will the future look like for theme parks or the near future? So everyone's wearing masks, everyone. You, you, you know, it's like now it's like it's going to be mandatory. And I think the uh, the uh, 
they're not going to tolerate very much people not wearing them. It would be like smoking. You can't light up a cigarette either. Um, they're going to imagine a roller coaster where there's no one sitting next to you and there's no one sitting behind you. So it's half full. There's just like a checkerboard of seats available. That's the kind of thing they're going to have. They're going to have a sanitation, I mean, a sanitizer station when you get on and off of things. Um, they're going to rely a lot more on mobile ordering. This is something that if you haven't been to a theme park in the last few years has been coming in anyway. That's something where you get the theme parks app free and on there are the menus of all the restaurants and you can order things directly with the app, press a button that says I'm ready to pick it up and then you don't have to wait in any lines. And they've been rolling that out at the theme parks anyway. So fortunately that's all ready to go. So it gets rid of lines there. And in the lines, they'll just space everybody apart as much as they can. Uh, and they'll also have, in Disney's case, which is starting in July, they're opening in Disney World in Florida. They're hiring a squad, is what they're calling them. And they're going to be bright and cheerful Mickey Mouse Club type of people who are just going to say, get that mask on. You know, oh, wow. it's not six feet away. They're going to be the social distancing squad to try to encourage everybody. So it's, I, it's going to be interesting. Um, as someone who covers theme parks, I'm fascinated, but also a little daunted about having to return myself. Uh-huh. Um, given all the changes that are going to be made, we don't know yet if they're going to be adequate. But we do know that they've started doing these already in Asia, uh, maybe about a month before we began doing this, especially um, in, I think in Korea and, uh, and China. So they're testing these sorts of things out already. So they're looking at how dangerous or not dangerous it possibly is. If the worst thing for Florida will be the masks will be terribly right. uncomfortable in the, in the summertime. Because even yeah. when you don't have a mask on, it's terribly uncomfortable. In yeah. Universal's case, a lot of the queues for the lines and the, uh, the attractions are all indoors. In a lot of cases, in Disney's case, there are a lot of outdoors. And that'll be less pleasant by far. Well, I got to say the most interesting experiment that I saw coming out of Asia in terms of theme parks is apparently in Japan, they are telling people no screaming on the rides <laughs> because they're worried they'll spray droplets as they scream. And so you have to do these Hilarious. rides in silence. Like riding a roller coaster in prison or something. Right, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be possible. I, I tell you, I will, one of my least favorite sounds in the world is middle, girl, middle school girls screaming on rides. So that could be a good thing. For some of us, but no, I don't, you can't stop people from screaming, but that's, that's very Japanese, isn't it? I bet you people will comply, but forget it. People <laughs> won't do that here. Right. And the other interesting thing, this reminds me of, of what's happening in Las Vegas. They're going to be reopening the casinos, but without much alcohol. And you got to wonder, will the casinos be able to make enough money if people aren't drunk when they're gambling? Because you would think people might pull their bets, you know, sooner and, and not be as foolish as they tend to be when they go to Vegas. Well, what we're not thinking it's going to change the audience as well. <clears throat> Imagine like you and I would be like, I'd like to have a cocktail. If I'm not a gambler, but if I were, I'd probably like to have a show. <clears throat> I'd like to have a drink because that's the whole, I'd like to go to the buffet because those are Vegasy things, right? None right. of those three things would be working at first. So who's going to go to a casino? They'll be the diehards, the people who just love gaming and couldn't do without and are so glad to be back. And that's not a general tourist crowd. Right. That's a more sure. specialty no. crowd. Absolutely. And that's going to happen over and over. Yeah. We have to take another break, uh, but we're speaking with Jason Cochran of Fromers.com and many Fromer guidebooks. We'll be right back.
You are listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my dad, Arthur Fromer, on the line, and another extended member of the family, Jason Cochran. Jason is the author of Fromer's Easy Guide to London, which is an award-winning book. It won Best Guidebook of the Year several years back. Uh, he, he is the author of Fromer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. Uh, and you also have your own book, Jason, which is about memorials around the United States. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? It's such an interesting time for this book to just be out. It's called Here Lies America. And it is, like you said, it's about the way that America has tended to memorialize terrible events in the past, which, of course, I think we're going through a bad era right now. And we might wonder what the memorial for this period will be one day. <clears throat> so I'm, it's, I've been very interested watching the recent headlines, seeing how it connects to the past in American history. For example, did you know that there really is no major memorial to the pandemic of 1918? In the book, I go to, it's a travel book. So I go to the tourist sites devoted to these things like battlefields and things like that. But there is nothing for the pandemic. There is no major tourist site for the San Francisco quake and fire. There is no major tourist uh, site and uh, memorial site for the Chicago fire, but there is one for a bombing that happened that killed some policemen. Even though to this day don't know who did the bombing, there is a memorial created for it. So it's interesting. I think if America's past is any guide, there may not be a, ma a massive you know, memorial remembering of this period that we're in right now. Um, if, if history is any guide, because we'd like to pick up and keep moving. Um, here lies yeah. America. I talk a little bit about in Chicago and San Francisco's cases when these terrible things happened. When it was done, they just wanted to get right back to business. They wanted to, you know, get the economy right back up again. And they had maps ready to go to replan the city with parks and avenues. Like they would look like Paris if they had done these changes. But they mm -hmm. didn't want to wait. They just wanted to get right back in uh, in the saddle and keep going. That's, I think, more of the American spirit. So it'll be interesting touristically in the future to see what we decide we want to do about this moment or if we just want to move through it. Yeah, yeah. We are speaking with Jason Cochran. He is the author of Here Lies America, which is just out. We were just discussing that, as well as being editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. And on Fromers.com, we cover every part of the travel industry, uh, which has been fun. It means we all have to be Renaissance men and women. We have to know about culture. We have to know about cuisine. We have to know about uh, business. And one of the big businesses in travel that seems to be in big trouble is cruising. But when we were speaking, uh, when we uh, – and uh, to, to, to reiterate, we're talking in early June, Norwegian Cruise Lines just brought out what their plans are for their safety protocols. And cruising is something that will be changing uh, drastically. Right, Jason? You, you're the one who covered this yesterday. Yeah, you know, 2020 has been a terrible year for buffets because <laughs> Vegas yes. said not now. Now, that's one of the ways they're going to solve it, or at least try to solve it on cruises. Uh, and Norwegian said, no more buffets, no more self-serve beverages, which you could do with juice and water. You have to have someone serve you. But I don't, the service fine. is fine. It's nice to interact with people. But, um, and also, you know, the soup plantation uh, chain of uh, restaurants closed because it's a buffet. So buffets huh. are taking the first hit. Another thing they're going to be doing on cruise ships, or at least on NCL, 
is taking your temperature pretty much all the time. Not, not just when you get on board the beginning of the cruise, but if you want to do an activity and if you go out to a port to explore town and come back on, I mean, every move, if you want to go up to the pool deck. So they'll be taking your temperature with one of those touchless wands that we now use. There's a whole discussion about whether those are useful too um, or how useful they are. So that's going to change radically as well. So those two things alone, they say they're also going to change all the filters on cruise ships in the air system so that they're medical grade and they filter out as much as possible because there's a lot of recycled air in a cruise ship. Hmm. So that will help filter out a lot of particles, uh, we assume. I don't know how many studies have been done on this, but we hope. And um, it also, um, what is the thing? Yeah, fogging with with a kind of acid uh, fog. It sounds horrible, yeah. but they say it's perfectly safe. What they'll do, they fog areas when you're not in them, like before you get into your room or before you get into an activity center. And it's, it's like an electrostatic fog made of some sort of acid that kills everything. And they say it's perfectly safe, but acid fogs are now uh, going to be one of the things they're doing behind the scenes to keep cruises clean. The bigger problem, though, is ports that don't want cruises to come anyway. Uh, that's right. the real issue. You can do everything you want to to make a cruise ship clean but if nobody wants you to dock it's going to be a literally a floating hotel because you're not going to be able to get off for the week that you're on it so that's the biggest problem that needs to be solved right absolutely um so people who want to follow in your footsteps jason who want to become travel writers in the near future looking ahead how do you think that will work i think the world will always want experts I think one thing we were experiencing right before all this began was there's a great pro- proliferation of non-experts. Huh. Uh, influencers, I think, yeah. is, is sort of the word that was bandied about. There were people whose only uh, expertise was, I'm going to inspire you by standing out in my bikini or whatever. <laughs> you, if you have an, uh, something that you and nobody else knows about, I, I, when I teach write, uh, writing clinics, I, I say this too, have something that you, someone has to turn to you for. Like you're the only person who knows about the newest cutting edge spa treatments. You're the only person who knows about airline unions or some, some specific thing that makes you the one. That's, I think, the most important thing an up and coming travel writer can do. Now, it's, it's maybe not the most glamorous. People were, were hoping they could just stay at luxury hotels and drink wine. And if you were in travel writing for that, that, you know, maybe will cause it's cause for introspection, perhaps. But, right. but if you, if you want to professionally, if you want to be able to do something, it's not much different from an actor. An actor has a look. Yeah. You're hired sure. for how you look. Right. So it's a similar thing. Uh, have a beat, do it well, and make sure it's not a beat that everyone else also does. I think right. um, that's a big Jason, one. With me, I was lucky we, enough to have budget with you. Yeah. We have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. You are listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And 
an extended member of our family, Jason Cochran, because he is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com, as well as being the author of Fromers Easy Guide to London and Fromers Easy Guide to Disney World, Orlando, and Universal Studios. Dad, in listening to how Jason is talking about travel writing and writing guidebooks... Uh, I have a question, Pauline. I have a question for Jason and returns to his guidebook to London. In the controversy that led to the emergence of Britain from the European Union, it was widely claimed that the basic economy, the, the economy of all of Britain, would be badly affected. Has that happened, Jason? Not not in the calamitous way that has been predicted. Um, but I, I won't say that's still out of the question, though, because there are still so many unresolved questions around around how Brexit will work and how trade will work. Um, and they've just been delayed by this moment that we're in. So I, I don't I don't think I can definitively answer that the damage isn't coming or that it is because we just don't know yet. Everyone's doing what they can to try to avert it. But there's going to be certain costs when a when a business finds that it's cheaper to operate in Frankfurt rather than in London, because now you'd be outside the EU if you stayed in London. That's going to have an economic repercussion for the city. But because the government is still hammering out deals for everybody on who should stay and who can go and what they'll have to pay if they do go, it's a big still remains a big question mark. I don't think it's going to be hitting a brick wall. Uh, it's not going to be like a Y2K type of situation where everything dissolves at once. It's going to be time before we realize exactly what the effects will be. Uh, Jason, in writing your book, Here Lies America, and in researching uh, Orlando for so many years, are there places domestically that you think Americans should be going? Because for most of the studies right now are saying that international travel will come back maybe in a little while, that, that, that people are going to be taking baby steps, that they're going to be maybe doing road trips. Uh, what would you recommend on, the, on that front, on the road trip front? Well, because of the nature of Here Lies America, I went to a lot of national park units that weren't giant Yellowstone arches type of national parks, but the historical units that are never very crowded, certainly won't be crowded now with no school trips going. I think it'd be a great time to learn about your own country's history by going to these smaller historic park units. You know, uh, there's, 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 there's several in every state. Often they honor a person you may not even know much about. One of my favorite ones is in Georgia, and it was kind of what inspired me to write Here Lies America. It was Andersonville. And I don't know if you know about Andersonville. I know you have because you've read the book, actually. It's, it's basically a concentration camp. It was a POW camp run by Confederates where they kept Union people. And I forget how many people died offhand, but something like 12,000 or something people in a year and a half died. An insane wow. number of people. And um, it happened on both sides, both the Confederates and and the uh, Union ran these camps and they were all terribly deadly. But this is the one that was sort of set aside, sort of stand in for all of them for the National Park Service. Um, And it's fascinating to go because you're like, why didn't I know about Well, most school children are not taught this aspect of our history. We just assumed there was a terrible war and we got over it. So it's really good to look back at the things we've been through um, because they did shape us. And they sure. brought us to the moment that we're in. Just because you didn't hear about it in school does not mean it did not have an effect on society. And Andersonville is certainly one of those places. Um, so I think find one near you uh, or, or, you know, in a couple states over, there's plenty to go see. There's about 400 something units 
in the national park system. And only about, I think, 25% of them are these giant natural uh, national parks. There's so much more that you can go see and learn about. And they're not going to be too crowded because people are going to the big national parks. Right, right. And state parks and the like. But road trips are going to... What were you about to say about state parks? <laughs> no, yes. I think that some, some, some states have state parks that would be incredible national parks in any other country, California being a good example. What, what state parks there do you think deserve national There's, park well, well, for status? example, a lot of the, the giant trees that you, you read about, and you, you know, they're state parks, not in the national parks, the sequoias, you know, so the like, famous trees. Yeah, and like, also in Florida, for example, near, in Orlando, near Orlando, there's the, the Crystal Springs, you know, the, Wiki, the, the, um, the river, that, the St. John's River that flows through Florida was a, the original tourist attraction of Florida, steamboats would bring people from the north down through the state in the 1800s. And there's still beautiful, clear springs that are just gorgeous, um, that you can't believe exists sort of so close to the sprawl of, of central Florida. So a lot of states have really terrific places that you don't really realize. They just haven't, haven't become national parks. They're states. Is this where the manatees are? There are some in all over, especially on the coast, um, on state parks in Florida as well. I'm thinking of these specifically these in the center of the state. Um, but yeah, there, you'll find manatees all over the place as well at state parks in Florida, central Florida. They're easier to find in the wintertime because they seek warmth, um, you know, when the, wet, when the temperatures go down and you sort of know where the bodies of water are, where they'll be uh, warm enough to them. But they right. still are, of course, out there. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. We have to take one last break and then we'll be back with our final segment. I'm going to ask Jason why he thinks travel is important. We've been asking all our guests that. We'll be right back. We're back with the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer, and our guest today is Jason Cochran. You may know that name if you know Fromer's work because he is at the front and center of what we do. He is the editor-in-chief of Fromer's.com. He writes two of our most popular guidebooks, which are Fromer's Easy Guide to London as well as Fromer's Easy Guide to uh, Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. Uh, So, Jason, you're a person who has devoted his life to travel, to getting people to hit the road. Why do you think that's an important thing to do? Hmm. Now, I'm I'm by no means a perfect person. Um, So I say this with with that caveat, but I think travel makes you a better person. Who would I be without travel? I do not. I don't want to think about it. I think when you see other people who are completely different from you doing life in a different way from the way you do it, it makes so much happen inside your heart and your mind. It makes you realize other ways are possible. It makes you more sympathetic to people who are not like you. It makes you more patient because travel is one thing travel teaches you is, is how to be patient to get through every, every moment and how to be patient when you're learning about another person's life and culture. So I think travel just makes you a better person, even if you're not trying. I don't, many, I don't know many people who travel uh, extensively internationally and then, and then come back harder or angrier. Huh. Or they come back more open and, and more understanding and more patient. Most people. And I, I think this travel does great. It's like a, for me, it's like a spiritual spa. It, it just uh, it opens you up 
and uh, makes you ready to to understand things that you didn't think necessarily you were ready to understand before. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. I've been usually ending these shows with why people should come to Fromers.com, too, as well as the, why they should travel. Jason, what would you say as editor-in-chief? What, what do we have up there that will make your life better? Well, we work our tails off. Honestly, yeah. I am so – I don't – you never hear me boast and brag about these things normally. I am so proud of the work we have done in the last few months under the, under the conditions that we've had to work in. We've done some incredible features, uh, really, really strong stuff. Um, so I, I think you should come check out the hard work that we've been putting in. It's, it's, uh, it's been doing stuff that nobody else is, is doing. And you should also can hear by my voice as we do it with a point of view, yeah. you know, and, and it's, so we're doing it uh, to try to help people, not just to hear ourselves talk. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been interesting. And in, in this time of no travel, I think our, our travel writing has got gotten sharper and we've we've gained new fans at Fromers.com because we are covering culture and cuisine and history in, in such an interesting way. If I do pat myself on the back and you too. All right. We have to say goodbye for this hour. We thank you so much for listening. Please visit us at Fromers.com. Please pick up a Fromer guidebook and please tune in to our next show. And Dad, if you're traveling, what should you do? We wish you a hearty bon voyage.